Hello and welcome everybody to the Godcast. Uh, this is Xavier from the Godcast. Uh, again, this will be more of a solo episode with only me, and this will be also a research episode. Uh, but hopefully soon we can get some guests up and going again. Uh, with that being said, uh, this episode is on ancient Christian universalism. Uh, within ancient Christianity, there wasn't necessarily a set consensus on hell. Uh, today in Christianity, most uh, groups believe that hell um, either is this eternal place um, or it, um, in some groups, uh, will believe, or some people within some groups will believe in this concept called uh, annihilationism, which we'll get into, uh, which we'll touch on a little bit. Uh, and also some groups still sort of reject the notion of hell and believe that um, there is some sort of universal salvation, or at least we can hope that there is universal salvation, whether or not that will actually occur. And some still say that hell is in fact existent, but it's empty. So it's very interesting uh, in our current uh, religious climate today that there are that there are a diverse uh, array of opinions although of course the main prevailing one is that is the traditional view that hell is eternal uh, however um, the earliest Christians seemed to think a bit differently when we think of Christianity we often think of Jesus heaven and hell hell is to put it mildly not a pleasant idea for most people at least at face value it appears that God the creator of the universe who is literally called love in first John 416 forces the condemned to eter to endure eternal conscious torment in a fiery underworld with the devil and his angels. Many have viewed hell as incompatible with God's love and even rationality itself, arguing that it is morally atrocious to match a finite amount of wrongdoing with an infinite amount of punishment. Christians throughout the centuries have attempted to answer this question in a variety of ways. Some have argued that the doors of hell are locked on the inside and that God does not send people to hell, people send themselves to hell. Prominent apologist and philosopher William Lane Craig defend this position by citing the Bible, saying, quote, I don't think that hell is what is depicted in medieval paintings of torture racks and pincers and red-hot irons and things of that sort. It seems to me that the essence of hell is what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, They shall suffer the punishment of the exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And I think that is the anguish of hell. It is separation from God, from all that is good and beautiful and lovely, to be left with, own, with one's own crabbed and selfish heart forever. And I think that is the essence of what hell is. End quote. Others have argued that the wicked are eventually annihilated in hell, a position called annihilationism or conditional immortality. Proponents of conditional immortality also cite the Bible, although with much more technical nuance, often delving into the Greek text and, in carefully examining the text, coming to the conclusion that the suffering of the unrighteous in hell is brought to a painful end when they are annihilated by God. This position allows the justice of God to be fulfilled while matching finite crime with finite punishment. However, some might still object to this notion of hell by saying something like, would it not be utterly pointless for God to create people who, in his infinite foreknowledge, knew would refuse his grace and, as a result, would face his punishment of annihilation, but even create them in the first place? This line of arguing about the futility of creating effectively damned people is nothing new to the case against hell, whether that punishment is eternal or finite. Some, such as Richard Swinburne, who is a professor emeritus of philosophy at Oxford, have actually argued that the idea of free will, the, the, the concept that human beings possess free will, is actually more valuable to God than restricting that or simply creating people who would all go to heaven. Uh, nonetheless, that is a very complicated argument that uh, deserves to be explored in its own right at another time, and 
clearly, hell itself is obviously a complex topic, and at least the notion of of an eternal hell, if not also one ending in the utter annihilation of the wicked, is still very unappealing to many people. Perhaps, though, there is a third option that we haven't talked about. Perhaps this option is universalism. A quick note, I'm not actually advocating for the position of universalism. I don't really, uh, I'm not uh, promoting that. I'm also not promoting uh, annihilationism or the traditional version of hell or even just any theological agenda uh, in general on this uh, podcast, uh, especially within this one episode here in which we talk about um, a very specific aspect of Christian theology. But I think it is still very, absolutely very worthwhile to explore uh, this concept of universalism, uh, which actually um, exists in uh, a religion today, uh, just just to name one, which would be uh, Ahmadiyya Islam. Uh, they believe that uh, hell eventually at some point in time uh, ceases to exist or passes away, and people after enduring a very long but temporal punishment uh, do go to heaven. And also uh, prominent uh, Quranic scholar Shabir Ali, who's, is a, who's a pretty popular guy, he also uh, has that notion, although he's not part of the Ahmadi sect. Um, and then still some Christians will argue for universalism. Uh, that being said, I'm not actually arguing for universalism. I'm simply looking at this as a uh, as a timestamp in the very long hell debate in uh, Christianity, specifically in terms of what the earliest Christians believed. And I think this is also very useful in the study of comparative religion. With that being said, let us turn our attention to Origin of Alexandria. Origin of Alexandria, my personal favorite church father ever, although he's not called a church father by some people, but that's another. That's for another time. Uh, but Origin of Alexandria shaped his views on universalism or apocatastasis in the Greek on both Neoplatonism, a highly mystical school of philosophy, and his own version of the Bible, as there was no set standard for canonicity at the time. It is likely that among the books that Origen considered inspired were the Apocalypse of Peter, Epistola Apostolorum, and the Life of Adam and Eve. Both he and fellow universalist Clement of Alexandria would consider these texts instrumental in formulating their theologies. The Apocalypse of Peter was a popular text all around, and was likely written sometime between 100 to 135 AD, or CE, whichever dating system you prefer, possibly in Egypt. Some scholars have argued that it represents an oral tradition independent of the oral tradition used in the canonical Gospels. Clement of Alexandria considered this text to be inspired and included it in his New Testament canon. It is possible that Origen, who succeeded Clement as the dean of the Catechetical School of Alexandria in 203 AD, or CE, also viewed the text as authoritative. It is important to see the Apocalypse of Peter within the Petrine tradition. As Christianity spread throughout the Greco-Roman world in the 1st and 2nd centuries, traditions or movements surrounding individual apostles began to spring up, prompting the literate members of these communities to record stories attributed to their respective apostles. The proposed Johannine community, proposed by Dr. Raymond Brown, who was a Catholic priest and a scholar of early Christianity, was perhaps the most influential of these communities in proto-Orthodox and Orthodox Christian thought, as some Some scholars have argued that this community was responsible for at least four New Testament texts, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and arguably, but probably not, the Book of Revelation. The Johannine Christians also produced the Acts of John, which espouses a docetist or incorporeal Christology. The Petrine community, centered around the Apostle Peter, produced... literature, including the canonical epistles of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, as well as the non-canonical Gospel of Peter, which was dated anywhere between 50 AD or CE to the 2nd century. And the Apocalypse of Peter was also written by this community. 
other communities included the Thomasine Christians, who still exist today and were instrumental in being the first group to bring Christianity to India in the early half of the 3rd century, or perhaps earlier. Their texts include the famous Gospel of Thomas, as well as the Acts of Thomas, which details Thomas's missionary journey to India, as well as his interactions in the subcontinent. With this well-established fact in place that many pieces of early Christian literature were produced by communities devoted to various apostles, it is important to see how the theology of these individual apostle-centered canons were consistent across one another, even if only some of the texts from, say, the Petrine tradition made it into the final canon in 397 AD or CE, whichever dating system you prefer. Consider 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Here, Jesus descends into hell to offer salvation to all the world's population who lived before him, including those who died in Noah's flood, a type of all unbaptized people. The verses read as follows, quote, in which he also went and proclaimed and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19-21, through 21, as translated from the NASB. By the way, I used the NASB there because it is um, basically uh, known for its uh, literal rendering of the Greek. They try to take the original Greek New Testament and attempt to render the words in the most literalistic way, the most literal translation from each individual word. Um, that being said, this doctrine of at least a second chance for all who died in sin before Christ's salvific mission is evident in the Gospel of Peter, which contains the following excerpt, quote, And that stone which had been set on the door rolled away of itself, and went back to the side, and the sepulcher was opened, and both of the young men entered in. When therefore those soldiers saw that, they waked up the centurion and his and the elders, for they were also there keeping watch. And while they were, and while they were yet telling, and while they were yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw three men come out of the sepulchre, and two of them sustaining the other, and a cross following after them. And of the two, they saw that their heads reached unto heaven. But of him that was led by them, that had overpassed the heavens. And they heard a voice out of the heavens, saying, Hast thou, or thou hast, priest unto them that sleep? And an answer was heard from the cross, saying, Yea. That is the Gospel of Peter, lines 37 through 42. Clearly this is another example of Christ's descent into hell during his three-day absence from the world. However, one could easily argue that Christ only save the disobedient and wicked before his first coming on earth, and that all who live after him did not live righteously, who did who do not live righteously will not face a second chance upon their deaths and will be cast into eternal damnation after the final judgment. While this argument may seem convincing at first, a closer examination of the apocalypse of Peter yields a different view. Both the Apocalypse of Peter, a Christian text used by Origen and Clement, and the Sibylline Oracles, a pre-Christian Greek mystical text also by also used by the two men, teach that the living can pray for the dead in hell so that they may eventually escape its fire. 
Turning now, turning our attention now to the Apocalypse of Peter, the ancient Rainier fragment of the text, written in Greek, reads, quote, I shall grant to my summoned and my elect all those whom they ask me to remove from punishment. And I shall grant them a beautiful baptism in salvation in the Atresian Lake, which is said to be in the Elysian Valley, a justification with my saints. End quote. Additionally, the Sibylline Oracles reads, quote, And to the pious will the Almighty God, and to the pious will the Almighty God, imperishable, grant another thing. When they shall ask the imperishable God that he will suffer men from raging fire and endless nine anguish to be saved, and this will he do. For hereafter he will pluck them from the restless flame, elsewhere remove them, and for his own people's sake send them to the other and eternal life with the immortals in Elysian field. End quote. Chapter 14 of the Apocalypse of Peter contains Jesus saying that he will pull the damned out of hell. Well, the word, quote, eternal is used in the text uh, to describe various punishments uh, as the Apocalypse of Peter uh, deals with a variety of different punishments for particular things that are perceived as sins. It kind of lays it out in a sort of... Uh, uh, like a list of this is people who did this and this is how they're being punished. Well, while the term eternal is used for those punishments, it is necessary to understand that the Ethiopic and the Greek are etymologically related, given that the text uh, has both an older Greek uh, rendering and a, and a somewhat newer Ethiopic uh, translation. Uh, keeping in mind the relationship between the, keeping in mind that, but it's important to keep in mind, with all that in mind, it's important to keep in mind that the Ethiopic and the Greek are etymologically related to a general word that means eternal when referring to the character of God, but otherwise means ancient, removed, enduring, divine, heavenly, or related to the future world. Even though the term enduring could be used, enduring does not necessarily mean he- mean eternal uh, hell, and is and it is clearly it is clear from chapter fourteen that Jesus saves souls from hell. It's very explicit in that passage, uh, chapter fourteen. Therefore, it is important to understand that within the internal uh, constructs of the text, uh, it is very clear that um, by eternal, we really do mean something like enduring for a period of time or something that is remote or something that is a heavenly punishment from, from the divine as opposed to something that is an eternal punishment in the view of classical hell. Lastly, the Apocalypse of Peter delivers a scene in which Jesus says that the impression that hell is eternal is better is better kept as a secret because it may cause people to sin if they know that the punishment is temporal. Uh, Origin of Alexandria, for example, the great uh, intellectual who I referred to earlier, who developed this doctrine of universal salvation, also believed that it would be better to act as if hell is eternal than to simply know that hell is, um, in their line of thinking, um, temporal because one might sin, one might be tempted to sin, one might let up um, and uh, fall into bad behavior. Um, so it's better just simply better to just simply say, hey, hell is eternal. Uh, these texts which taught salvation for the damned by means of prayer for the damned, as we read in the Apocalypse of Peter and the Sibylline Oracle, oracles, um, actually play actually appeared to play an important role in the fleshing out of the doctrine of purgatory, an essential element of the Catholic faith. And I'm not saying that Catholicism got this from these texts. I'm simply saying that that, that these texts seem to uh, have inspired that uh, doctrine or have helped flesh out that doctrine. With that being said, this has been a pretty quick podcast episode. I hope you uh, 
find this very informative and very interesting. Um, that being said, uh, hopefully we can get an interview up pretty soon. I'm trying to uh, uh, perhaps record a debate pretty soon, since I know that people, uh, at least people who I've, who I've talked to about the podcast, uh, have liked that. And uh, with that in mind, with that being said, uh, this has been uh, the Godcast. This has been an episode on ancient Christian universalism, specifically with a focus on uh, what would be called the Catechetical School of Alexandria, which was one of two uh, great centers of higher Christian learning. Uh, we didn't really talk about Gregory of Nyssa, who also arguably espoused universalism, or uh, the great 7th century uh, Greek-speaking, well, actually, the, both origin uh, Clement or Greek, Greek, Greek speaking about the more uh, with the Byzantine, uh, the great Byzantine um, uh, monk and theologian uh, Maximus the Confessor, who was arguably universalist as well. Uh, but um, I hope that this was still very informative within this Alexandrian uh, tradition of of Christianity. That being said, I am um, Xavier. This is the Godcast, and stay tuned. <laughs>